Let's pray together. I'm going to use, I'm using this one. Yep. Lord, we come to this text of scripture that is just altogether a powerful reminder of your supremacy, your greatness, your amazing grace, your immeasurable power. And we can't help but think, Lord, uh, the main thing we want to get out of this text is we want to see Jesus. We want to appreciate him more fully. We want to be more in awe of him and of the greatness of his work of grace to change the leper's spots, as it were, to change a heart of stone, to bring from death to life the one in whom you choose to work. And so, Lord, uh, show us and instruct our hearts, we pray, as we look into this portion of your word for the glory of your name. We pray these things. Amen. I don't know how many of you have been to Monticello, the home of Thomas Jefferson. How many of you have been there? Okay, some of you get off the island. That's nice. Okay. Um, and while there, I remember as a child, I think it was part of our sixth grade uh, trip to D.C., and uh, so I remember something about Jefferson having a pen knife, and he cut portions of his Bible out with the pen knife. And I remember, so I went online and tried to verify exactly what he was doing there. Uh, and what he did was, uh, in his later years, in retirement years, he's already served as president, uh, he came into his uh, portions of the Gospels, and he used his penknife and extracted those portions of the Gospels that he thought uh, were appropriate to be grouped together to tell the story of Jesus as he thought it might and that it, that it was the best way to make sense of Jesus' life. Omitting and leaving in his King James Bible all mention of the resurrection, anything miraculous, and anything that emphasized Jesus as indeed God. A sad commentary about a man who was so brilliant and who understood political philosophy and so many other things so well, and yet he was clueless about how to handle Scripture because he was doing it through the lens of what made the most sense to him. Now, I dare say, I wonder what he would have done had he continued on with the story of the early church. Would this have remained in his Bible? Would he have just left this passage in Acts chapter 9 and just said, well, this is beyond understanding, and no, this is too remarkable. We're not going to touch that one. I dare say this chapter is indeed a remarkable chapter that cannot be omitted in the story of Christianity. I dare say, no doubt, that this event is a crucial story in the narrative of early Christianity. Some authors have made the case that Paul's spiritual transformation ranks among the most significant events in world history. You say, that's a bold statement, young man. Yes, I did say young man, didn't I? <clears throat> but Luke I believe, would affirm that particular point of view because Luke does not just record an extensive account of this incident in chapter 9. He repeats it extensively also in chapter 22. And then he repeats it, which again, Paul is speaking to a crowd who's uh, about to start a riot 
in Jerusalem. And then Paul repeats it, and Luke includes it another time in chapter 26 before Agrippa. Indeed, suppose, if, if we take a moment and just suppose, suppose this event never took place. What then? Suppose we didn't have this account of Saul's conversion in our Bibles. Well, we would know that what? We'd only have about 10 chapters of Acts. We'd have basically take the book of Acts and cut it in half. And then you would just have uh, no, no inclusion of 13 epistles in the New Testament. You would have the elimination of large portions of theology and doctrine in the understanding of the church today. You would have people of like great Christian leaders like Luther and Augustine and Wesley, Calvin, others, who would have never made an impact on society at all. You have never heard from these people. And you would also, Christianity, we would understand, would have just remained a regional movement, a regional sect, as it were, rather than what? A worldwide moving of the Holy Spirit in every portion of this globe. The fact is, Saul of Tarsus did undergo a powerful conversion, just as it is recorded in Acts chapter 9. And this has huge implications for you and for me. And I could easily just go on and on here. I just started some thoughts uh, earlier in the week when I was putting my thoughts here. First of all, we could say, what are the implications? Well, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to what? Everyone who believes. And that everyone, my friend, is really broad because it includes Saul of Tarsus, as we'll see in a moment. God is able to do what we consider to be impossible. It is not up to us to decide what God can and cannot do with our penknife and take things out of the Bible or leave things in the Bible. What makes sense to you and me? God is able to do what we consider to be impossible, and God is supreme, and God is sovereign over salvation. God is supreme, and He is also uh, 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 sovereign over the church. And therefore, He sends, He calls, and He saves whomever He wills. I would imagine this also could say that God's power is greater than the most stubborn, sinful heart. It is God's grace that is deeper than the worst record of sin committed by any person. We also can say that from this text, God's love can triumph over the unholy hatred of people who try to destroy the church for whom Jesus Christ died. Now, I could go on and on. I'm getting ahead of myself. I haven't even gotten into the text yet, and I'm already excited. But I want us to look at this text, and I, you could look at this text a number of ways. I've tried to categorize it three headings. You could think of it visually. If you're a visual person like I am, think of the first point as the symbol of, in, in like in, a, in a, a, a digital playing format, it's the arrow that says, go backwards. Right? The little button you push, go backwards, go that way. 
The second point in, in my message today is the, is the indicator in a digital uh, player of stop, pause, which would be two parallel lines, right? You familiar with that? You seen that? Pause. And then the third point would be considered an arrow going in the opposite direction saying play. Are you with me? You're like, what is this guy talking about? Okay, well, I've got fancy headings in my notes. You can look at them. The first point is this. We have a raging religious persecutor on our hands. And the account here in Acts 9 is that we have a stubborn sinner who's headed toward hell. That's what we're faced with at the beginning of this text. Now, we can say a lot about the apostle, I'm sorry, about Saul and his background. We know that he was born in Tarsus, which is a city in Cilicia. That means nothing to you people probably. But it's in Southeast Asia Minor. So it's a bit of a distance away from where we are picking up the story here. His father was, I'm sure, a well-to-do man. He was a Jewish man. His father was also a Roman citizen. That's not a minor issue or fact. Saul was very well educated. There's no question about that. He was a brilliant man. At one point in his life, he was sent off to Jerusalem, at which he had a very privileged opportunity, which I'm sure was not offered to too many people at his time, in which he studied under the respected Jewish scholar named Gamaliel. It was probably during those years, and we're just supposing here, that he uh, began to memorize huge portions of the Old Testament. He would commit to memory these large sections of the Old Testament. That's what he studied uh, for, for many, many, many hours. He became an expert in it. It was also likely during this time that he adopted the teachings and the priorities of the Pharisee party as one of the subsections of the Judaism of his day. This was the party that was big time in keeping rules, making sure that the law was very front and center of everything. And so his zeal for this purity of his Jewish faith led him to the extreme at later on his life in which he became a fanatic, a person who was completely intolerant of anyone who said anything other than what he considered to be the truth. So we come upon a man in Acts chapter 9 who was highly offended and had been for a number of years at the, that the teaching of the early disciples of Jesus, who have come now out of Jerusalem, they're beginning to spread out, they're beginning to move in all directions, partly because of persecution. And this group of people are insisting that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was some sort of Messiah, a Jewish Messiah. And when Saul hears that these Christians are spreading not only that crazy, outrageous rumor, but also that this Jesus Messiah fella had been somehow raised from the dead, he is just beyond, beside himself. He's like, that is ludicrous, that is blasphemous, that is dishonoring to God. And so he has secured the authority from the high priest to arrest anybody, man or woman, who is going with these claims about this Jesus of Nazareth, and they happen to be still attending the local synagogues in various towns in that area. And so we find him in this account, traveling north from Jerusalem, how far away? 140 miles. That's how fanatical this guy was. He's not just going to local towns near Jerusalem. He is going way out of the area that you would think he would be concerned about, in terms of close to Jerusalem, 
And what is he doing? Verse 1. Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He is a raging, almost like a wild animal, out of control. Now let's be clear, the reason that Saul was determined to eliminate any and all followers of the way, which is a nickname for the early Christian believers and those who followed Jesus, the reason why he is determined to eliminate them is because he knew what they taught, he knew what they claimed. That's very important that you understand that. He had heard what they're teaching. He had heard Stephen make his famous sermon known in earlier chapters there in Acts. And Saul took great offense that any movement would make this outlandish claim that God's Messiah would die on a Roman cross, which in his mind was to die under the curse of God. How can you claim that that was a Messiah when he's dying as a criminal on a cross? He just, he just can't get that it's offensive to his mind. And he reacts with outrage when he hears Stephen make his charge in chapter 7, verse 52. And he was standing right there that day, very, very clearly recorded by Luke. He's standing there giving approval that, yes, this man should be shut up and he should be put to death. Stephen's making the charge there in 752 that Jesus was the righteous one. Jesus is not the unholy one under the curse of God. He is the righteous one who was murdered. His life was unlawfully taken as a dishonor and disobedience to God. It was murdered with the encouragement of the religious Jewish leadership of the day. And I believe that Saul knew deep down that he was culpable, he was responsible, played some part in the role of approving that this unlawful taking of Stephen's life, it landed on his shoulders. He was singled out by Lucas saying, he was standing there holding the jackets, witnessing, saying, I concur, I agree, this is the right action to take. Making him essentially a murderer or an excessive or accessory to murder. And so he listens to Stephen's words spoken as he's being pummeled with rocks. He is most likely bleeding, he's most likely on the ground, he is most likely in tremendous pain and Stephen is doing what? He is offering a gracious prayer that God would forgive the people who are doing this to him. I am convinced that that was a very pointed prod, as it were, in the conscience of Saul. That Saul knew in listening to this man prayer, he he knew that he was not of that kind of heart. He would never have prayed and never did pray a prayer like that in his life. He realized this man is not like your average person. He realized, I believe at that moment, that Saul, if he was honest, is not as righteous as he would portray himself to be. You say, how do you know that Saul was struggling in this way? Well, in Acts 26, verse 14, and you might want to look at that at a later time, read through that whole account of Paul reviewing this incident. He also did, as I said earlier, did chapter 22 as well. But 26, 14 
Paul explains the story of his conversion years later, before Agrippa, and he says this. He says that Jesus asked him specifically, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he adds this. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You say, what is a goad? Well, we are not agricultural farming people of the first century, but they were very familiar with a goad because a goad is any sharp stick that would be used to prod an ox that most likely is pulling something or pulling a plow or pulling a wagon or something. The ox decides, I'm not going, I'm not moving any further. I'm staying right here. And so the owner would take this goad and he would poke I'm sure in a way that was not very comfortable for that ox to move him forward, to do what he was supposed to be doing. Now, Saul's conversion, we must understand, because of this statement, that he had been resisting the goading of God, that we understand that Saul's conversion was not a sudden, one, quick moment event. But we must understand that this is something that has a, a backstory to it, that we are really not fully aware of everything, that there was a long, drawn-out process in which, in a sense, the hound of heaven has been at work in trying to prepare Saul, knowing that his conscience was beginning to bother him. Saul, no doubt, could not forget that there was this contrast between himself and his fellow religious persecutors who are standing there throwing these stones at this man, Stephen, while Stephen is praying that what? Lord, don't hold this sin against this, these people. Don't you think that would do a number on your conscience if you saw somebody doing that? Here is Saul acting like a wild, out-of-control animal while Stephen is under the control of the Holy Spirit. Vastly different. And I wonder if one of the reasons that Saul was so aggressively attempting to eliminate and destroy the church and any of the followers of the way and of early Christianity is because he was seeking relief for his guilty conscience. And he was doing it in a way in which rather than taking moments to look inward and to search his own soul and to humbly confess his sin before God, knowing that he had done many things to offend a holy God. He tried to compensate for his moral deficiencies by trying to what? Justify himself. To try to make himself look all the more zealous. All the more determined to do what he thought would impress other people and would somehow impress God. And that raises the question in my mind, what do you do in your attempt to try to cleanse your guilty conscience? Where do you turn? Who are you trying to impress? What are you pursuing? What are you trying to do to fill the emptiness that you oftentimes feel when you feel, when I'm fully exposed, when people really know the real me? Where do you turn to find your own justification? I believe Saul tried to be the best Pharisee in the world. He was out to be the best. And all the while, as I've said in my first point here, all the while, his heart was hard toward God. 
He was religious, but he was dead in his sins. He was religious, but he was headed toward hell. And sadly enough, he was riding aboard the express train of religious self-righteousness. And that's where we find him. And that's why I've got the one arrow going in one direction. More, probably more accurately, it should have been a direction of this. But you, you put however you want in your notes. I want us to consider, secondly, in this text, the pause button, as it were. Point number two, we find in this portion of this account is the redemptive intervention. A redemptive regeneration, work of God, the call of God, a sovereign Savior stops this man. He seeks out this man, and he saves the man who was lost. There's no way to read this account without noticing the suddenness with which this account unfolds and with which Saul now was interrupted. It, it came out of the clear blue. Here is Saul headed with an entourage, which I think might have been his bodyguards. It may have been people who are some, you know, bouncer kind of guys, you know, big heavy guys that, well, they didn't use steroids, but I'm sure they were pretty big guys. And uh, they were the guys going with him, this little gang of guys. With him. And here he is. Everything gets interrupted. There is no warning. I have several different no's in your notes here. If you get them, you don't, that's fine. But there's no warning about what's to take place. Look at verse 3 and 4. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, if you read elsewhere, chapter 22, chapter 26, it's in noon. It's at noon. It's the sun is shining. And yet it still is even brighter yet. The glory of God in Christ flashes around him. He hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There's no escaping this intervention. Where's he going to go? How's he going to get out of that situation? Reminding us, by the way, that there's going to be a day when all of us We'll have no escape the day of accountability before God. We all face one, one day. And for Saul, it was that day. He hadn't planned for it. It wasn't on the calendar. It wasn't something he was expecting. And here it is. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There's nowhere to hide. He has no opportunity to change his plans. It's not like he say, can you hold this just a second, please? I've got some things I've got to finish first. Mm-mm. He's personally confronted by Jesus Christ. You should put it in front of that. He's personally confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus calls his name twice. You better watch out. You hear your name called twice by Jesus. That's not necessarily a good thing. Martha, Martha was not a kind greeting. It was a warning. Simon, Simon, not something you should... Uh, uh, think was just, uh, oh, I'd just like to hear that name repeated. No, he says, Saul, Saul is a warning. I want to get your attention. You better listen carefully here with what I've got to ask you. And so Saul cannot evade the realities of what? He is now being spoken to by the living Lord Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead. Let that sink in for a moment. Because if you fast forward about 17 years, I've estimated, 
from the day of his conversion. Fast forward 17 years later, you read in Acts chapter 17, here's the same individual who now has had an opportunity to understand more clearly who it was that spoke to him on that day. Here are the words of Paul, and he says to the Athenians, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through Jesus Christ, having furnished proof to all men by raising Jesus from the dead. He's talking to the judge of all the earth. And the judge is confronting him saying, hey, listen, what in the world are you doing persecuting me? It's interesting to notice that Saul has no excuses to help him escape the accountability that he's now faced with. What excuse is he going to make up at that point? Here he's standing before the Lord, the judge of all the earth, and what happens? He's down on his knees, unable to see, unable to move about unless he's, someone guides him, temporarily blinded. He has been stopped in his tracks by sovereign grace. And God intervened before Saul could carry out any further atrocities in the name of this pharisaical Judaism that he had bought into. Now let's be very clear here. The radical change of Saul's heart, whereby, as we read through the account, he repents of his sin, the sin of persecuting Jesus and of his followers, was no emotional, psychological, momentary breakdown. Saul's crisis was due to Jesus' direct personal confrontation of him. He was no longer a proud man confident of his accomplishments. He was no longer a man who was comparing himself to other people and trying to have the upper uh, you know, performance level versus other people around him when it comes to religious duties. Saul became a broken man. You say, how do you know that? I'll tell you how I know it. If you write down, you ought to write down the margin of your Bible right there in Acts 9. 1 Timothy 1.15 is a portion of which Saul tells his testimony in brief form to Timothy, and he says this. He calls himself the worst or the chief of sinners. He was a broken man. He saw himself as God saw him. Now, what led him to this change of heart? What, what led to this dramatic reversal? Well, there are many answers. But I'm convinced that one is that Jesus stopped him in his tracks and forced him to be, in your notes, letter B, he's got to deal with the truth. He is forced to deal with the truth, not just what he had always been told, not what he always insisted was true for everybody else or himself. He had to deal with the truth. And what was the truth? The truth about his own sinful actions and his own sinful heart. As I said earlier, Saul had to admit that he was a violent, murderous person who had taken those kinds of actions against many people, we don't know how many, and that what those actions were was nothing more than the overflow of his wicked, proud, self-righteous heart. And the Holy Spirit, no doubt, helped him to see the heinousness of his sin when he compared that life 
to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and here is Jesus, the one that Saul used to hate and despise, which I'm sure was part of this understanding that Paul, when he gives his testimony, says, I was a blasphemer. I was speaking about Christ as if he were someone to make fun of and mock. Now i got a question here. What does it take for people like you and me to humbly confess and admit to the countless ways in which we have offended the one who is holy and who laid down his life on the cross for you and me? What is it that brings people to that point? Well, I'm convinced it is truth married to or enabled or applied with the help of the Holy Spirit. John 16. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is one who convicts the world of unbelief and of sin and of righteousness. You do not reach this conclusion on your own. It's not like one day you wake up and say, huh, I'm going to sort of think my way into the kingdom. The Holy Spirit works in your heart, applies the truth, and you begin to see it, and you're like, oh, I'm crushed. I have nowhere to brag. I have nowhere to turn. I, I close my mouth. I have nothing to plead other than I'm guilty. The second thing, the truth that Saul had to face that day, not only was his actions and his heart, but his true identity, the true identity of Jesus Christ. You see, Saul could no longer dismiss Jesus by saying, as he has many times before, that Jesus was irrelevant. I'm sure that's what Saul was telling everybody. Or that Jesus was some sort of false prophet. No longer is that going to shake it anymore. He, he now realizes that is, <laughs> that's all been blown out of the water. Because why? Jesus is alive. He spoke to him. He's confronted him. And Jesus was not under the curse of sin, which is what he probably had been blabbermouthing all over the place, mocking all these people who are followers of Jesus, saying, listen, this guy died on the cross. He was clearly someone under the curse of God. Clearly that's not the case. He took on the curse that you and I deserved, but God clearly was using him on that cross to accomplish the purposes of God. Is Jesus who laid down his life for sinners like Saul for no reason other than sovereign love. And true believers are forever and always united to the living and loving Savior who gave himself for his people. You, you find that in this text, do we not? Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Well, how is he persecuting Jesus if he isn't really saying that I am so closely united to and identified with my people that when you hurt my people, arresting them and hitting them and throwing them in jail and stoning them and killing them, you're doing that to me. It reminds me of that great text in Romans 8. Nothing shall separate God's people from the love of Christ. When Jesus confronted Saul, he did so in love. He spoke the truth in love. And when we help people see the depth of their sinfulness by pointing them to what the law says so that they might understand that they do not measure up to the standards of acceptance before God, we are truly acting in love. 
Now, what are some quick words of application in this text at this point? Saul's heart was changed. He was stopped in his tracks. He was confronted by sovereign grace. There is no other explanation. Show it to me in this text, and I'll be glad to consider it. There is no other explanation as to why God is doing what he's doing in this text. And let me say also, you need to hear me say, this is a unique conversion. We do not see this as the norm of how people enter into the kingdom of God, okay? It is the right pattern of, time, of seeing how God does initiate and God does take his own sovereign role in bringing people to faith. But we, he does not always work miraculously like this, but he does work providentially to draw people to himself. It is God who took the initiative for his own glory and for his own pleasure. If you look on the back of your notes, sermon notes, and I'd like you to do that for a second here, I've included the words of a hymn that I cannot find a tune that, I is fami- that I'm familiar with, a tune that, that I could sing this thing, but these words are profound from Josiah Condor, 1836. It is not that I did choose thee for Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee hadst you not chosen me. You from the sin that stained me have cleansed and set me free. Of old you have ordained me that I should live to you, to thee. T'was sovereign rain, toward sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind. The world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst, this knowing if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. Hmm, that sounds like something in First John, doesn't it? He loved me, we love him because he first loved me. I urge you to meditate on those words until that sort of gets to the bottom of your soul. Because don't miss the point of this text, my friend. God is able. Isn't that what we learn in this text? God is able. Jesus is able to save the worst of sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. It is His power that can radically change a proud person's heart. He can transform a person's heart who is just steeped in self-righteousness, in self-focus, in self... Uh, um, what's the word I want to say? A person who is, who is focused on a self-will. I'm going to do what I want to do. Even if it means I'm going to take other people's lives. It's all about me. into a person whose heart is full of humility and complete submission to God. No longer was Saul commanding other people to go to this place and go do that. and Now he's what? Submissively following the commands of his Savior. Motivated by what? Sincere love. By profound reverence for the one who laid down his life for him. And I just go back again, as I've said this morning a couple times already, Ephesians 3, those words that Paul the Apostle wrote later on in life, looking back on his own conversion and of the work of God in the gospel, it says what? God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we can ask or imagine. 
Do you believe that? Does it affect the way you witness? Does that affect or impact the way you pray? Does it impact the way in which you are confident about the promises of God? You say, well, I know some people that are so unlikely to ever enter the kingdom. I've tried, I've shared, get nowhere. Let me just encourage you to feed your soul with some encouraging testimony. On the back again of your notes, the bottom of that page, I've listed some ways in which you can track down on the web the testimony of Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. She was one of the most unlikely converts, as she says in a book she wrote about her own testimony, her own story, is that she was a women's studies professor at Stanford University. She was tenured professor of lesbian studies. As a lesbian, she was uh, on the, on, uh, as a faculty member there, and God, by His grace, through the patience and through the love and the speaking of truth by numerous people God brought into her life, she turned her whole back on that whole way of thinking, way of acting, way of, of uh, seeing herself. And she is a follower of Jesus Christ who's been radically transformed by the gospel of grace. You need to hear that testimony, my friend. And there are many others like that testimony that can be found. My point is this, God is able. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Thirdly, well, let me just, before I move on to number three, sorry, I want, I want to make one more final point here, and that is when you hear the power of God to save someone and transform their life, they may not be the worst of sinners in the sense of someone living a life of total uh, wretchedness or some sort of flagrant outward sin because let's, let's say the Apostle Paul was not a person that had spent time in jail or breaking of the laws of his nation he lived in. No, he wasn't that kind of sin, but he had sinned against God in many ways. The point is that once he understood the greatness of his sins and the way in which he offended the holiness of God is that he couldn't help but just begin to offer an exclamation of benediction to God. And so he does so in 1 Timothy chapter 1.17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He can't help but give God glory and praise. Because God is able to save the worst of sinners. All right, let's move forward to point number three. This is that little arrow moving forward, right? In an entirely opposite direction of where things were headed in the first point. We have repentant, obedient gospel converts in this text who are following Jesus. What a beautiful thing. I asked the question, how do we know that Saul was truly saved on that occasion? How can we be certain that this was not one of those, quote-unquote, foxhole conversions. Have you heard about those? When a person's in a crisis, they're, you know, they're, they know they may die at any moment, so they say, oh, God, help me, help me, help me. You know, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And yet, when the crisis is over and they survive that situation, what? They just go on to their own life of unbelief and opposing Christ. Well, Again, I would just say the answer, one of the answers I think is found by the reformers who came up with the phrase that faith alone saves, the faith that saves us is never 
alone. What's it saying? That if I'm truly saved by faith, there will be evidence and the fruit of that faith will be seen in my life. A person who's regenerated by the Holy Spirit, made alive in Christ, will invariably respond in faith by turning to Christ and turning away from sin. Turning to Christ, turning away from sin. And within the short order of his conversion, Paul bore the fruit of repentance, which included obedience to Christ. What does he do there? He goes into the city like he was told to. And while he's waiting during those three days, he can't see a thing. What's he doing? He's praying. He is acknowledging for the first time in his life that he loves God, that he wants to commune with God, that he opens up his heart to God, talks to God, and enjoys the wonders of being a child of God. For the first time in his life, he's enjoying with communing with God with his conscience cleansed and justified by faith. Even though Saul was warned that he would suffer for Christ's sake in verse 16, he's telling, listen here, your life is going to be suffering, 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 suffering for Jesus. What does he do? He doesn't turn his back on Christ. He doesn't say, well, listen, that's not what I'm signed up for. Thanks anyway. I'm really not that interested. No. He pursues Christ. Why? Because Christ has become his greatest treasure. Read Philippians 3. And you can't help but see that. I want to know Christ. There's a passion to know Jesus. He can't get enough of the wonders of Christ. And so he obeyed Christ. He was baptized, verse 18. He confesses Christ as Lord. I can go on and on with that. We'll talk more about that. He'll, he changes his message. We'll talk about that next week. There's another incident, though, in this text that I just had to also meditate on. I'm short of time here, but... Um, let me draw your attention to this guy named Ananias. Now, this is not Ananias of Jerusalem who fell down dead, you remember, and was telling the half-truth and whatever, married to Sapphira. Okay, he's already buried. He's back in a, in a cemetery in Jerusalem. This is Ananias who lived in Damascus. Okay? So here's this Ananias guy, and he gets drawn into this drama of this uh, conversion of Saul, and God is telling him, listen here, I want you to go and I want you to go and lay hands on this guy named Saul. And I want you to tell him that he is going to be healed and that God is going to use him and that God has a plan for his life and different things. Now, this is the guy that has been destroying the church. This is the guy who has had people arrested, the guy who has had people killed. This is the guy who has lots of authority and power to destroy your life and to, uh, believe me, a person you wouldn't want to get too close to. So what does Ananias do? Verses 13 and 14. This is another reason why I think the Scripture is so true. This is the kind of response you would expect this person to make. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard. <laughs> Hadn't everybody heard? I have heard from many people about this man Saul, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. Who's he talking about? Stephen and others. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all. That means anybody, like me, anybody who calls upon your name. Wouldn't we have all responded like that? And what does God say to him? Jesus insists, verse 15, go. I don't want to hear your excuses. I don't want to hear all the reasons why it doesn't make sense to do this. 
I don't want to know about how you're afraid it, it may not go well. I don't want to hear anything else. Just go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Now at that moment, what do you do? You could say, you know, I don't feel like that. I, I have some troubled feelings inside and I don't have a real peace about that. Or do you say, okay, Lord, you are Lord, I'm your servant, I'm going to go. And I'm going to do so in love for you, in love because of my love for you, and I'm also going to do it with love for this brother who's been saved. And look at the text, verse 17. This is powerful. Ananias departed. You talk about guts. He entered the house. This guy named Judas had a house there. By the way, it's on where? Where's the house located? On Straight Street. They don't have those in Boston, by the way. It is Straight Street. Guess what? That's still there. This is historical. Luke is accurate in his historical uh, notations. There's a straight street. Absolutely, it's like two or three miles long. It's right down. Anyway, on that street. He goes in, he lays his hands on Saul, and he calls him what? Brother Saul. Ananias shows gospel kindness to his former enemy. Ananias, as an obedient child of God, disciple of Jesus Christ, received his former enemy as his brother. Ananias, the follower of Jesus Christ, not because he had good tingly feelings of, oh, isn't this exciting? This is a hallmark moment of, oh, everything's going to turn out wonderful. He does so because he's following what love does. Love takes action in response to the gospel. You don't wait on feelings. You do what love urges you to do. And so he goes and says, he greets his former foe as a family member. Extends to him the same forgiveness that Ananias had received from Christ. You see, the gospel breaks down walls of animosity. The gospel breaks down walls of hatred. The gospel breaks down walls of sinful anger. The gospel uproots and the, 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 uh, the long, deep roots of bitterness and revenge that oftentimes can be passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. It is the gospel that, that, that completely changes all those things and the bonds of Christian love are inexplicable apart from the gospel of a Savior who is the risen Son of God who demonstrated His own love toward the likes of you and me who even though we were His enemies He died for us. Let's pray. Oh God, we cry out to you today, overwhelmed by your grace, a grace that reaches so low, a grace that is 
only rooted in your sovereign heart, a grace that sees us even at our worst and draws us to yourself. Lord, when we see it so dramatically presented to us in the person of an unlikely convert, how can we not respond with a sense of wonder, love, and praise? Lord, we just give you all glory and praise that anybody is ever saved. You don't owe us anything but justice. But Lord, we thank you that your heart, out of love, sent Jesus Christ. And to think that he was treated so poorly and unjustly and in such a wicked way, and yet he did not give what was deserved on that occasion. He took all of those blows. He took all that mockery. He took upon himself the sins of his own. And he gives the wonderful invitation to become a part of his family. And I pray, Lord, today that you would use this portion of your word and the wonders of the greatness of the gospel to draw people to yourself today, Lord. There might be somebody here today who says to themselves, oh, if people really, really knew the real me, I would be ashamed I would not be able to hold my head up high. I'd be looked at and rejected and frowned upon. Lord, I pray that you would help that person know you already know everything about them and you love them. You died for them. And Christ died for their sins. I pray that they would today repent of their sins and turn to Christ. And for those who are self-righteous and those who look like they're so good on the outside and keep all the rules and who look religiously respectable, Lord, may their sins be revealed for what it really is, how offensive it is to you in making it seem like they don't need a Savior. Lord, we pray that they might also come to Christ. And I pray for some of us, Lord, who have been around and trying to sow the seeds of the gospel. We've become somewhat cynical as to whether people really would ever be saved we we conclude to ourselves well this will never happen lord forgive us fill us with a sense of humble reliance upon you and to trust you to work in your own sovereign ways and may you lord even this week draw young people little children to yourself as we present the gospel to them lord may your holy spirit have your way in our hearts Teach us to act in love by obeying Christ. Not because we're, we feel like it, but because we love Christ. and Therefore, we do what he asks and commands us to do. This is our prayer. May you be honored. May you be glorified. May you be the one who receives all glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.